hi everybody. This is Brent with Brent again. I it's a super treat. I'm here with Alan Jude. Hi, Alan. Hello. Hello. So uh, you've been kind enough to invite me into your home studio to have a conversation, which is a, a big treat for me. Mm-hmm. Um, we both call uh, the same province our home home province, which is kind of a treat. So um, we're north of the border for this one in Canada, yes. uh, which is nice. So the thanks for having country. me here. Um, and uh, so let's get right into it. I guess for those who don't know, Alan, um, you are a little bit everywhere. I'm, I'm kind of amazed at all the different things you end up squeezing into, um, into your days. So uh, I would say many of us know you from BSD Now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've been co-hosting that for eons, it seems. Yeah, 320-ish episodes probably by the time this comes out. Right, which uh, that's a few. Uh, that's yeah, a few. I, I don't know if you can do the math. That's We a, started in 2013 and we done, we've had an episode come out every single week without ever missing one since we started in early 2013. That's huge. Yeah, and uh, for the first while I was also doing another podcast every week as well. <laughs> so not new to podcasting, that's yeah. for sure. Um, and we'll get into that, but also um, super involved in FreeBSD, right? Yes. Uh, I started using FreeBSD, I guess, 2001 or so. Wow. Mostly because I was into IRC and I wanted to host my own server. And somebody told me, you know, to do that, you need to have a shell account. And I was like, what is that? Uh, <laughs> well, it all started actually with, uh, I, I told somebody I wanted to run my own server and they're like, all right, well, here's a link to go download the software. And they sent me the link, and it's a .tar.gz file. Uh, but, you know, WinRAR opens that on my Windows 98 machine, so sure. Uh, so I download it and open it, and it's got a bunch of files, and there's a readme and so on, but there's no .exe file. I'm like, how do you run this? And they're like, <laughs> oh, you don't run it on Windows. <laughs> like, there's a thing other than Windows? Like, it's not a DOS program. What do you mean? That's when your world just expanded, right? Yeah. Uh, and they're like, well, no, you need to run on this... Uh, you need a shell account to do it. I'm like, oh, what's that? And I get into it. And I remember even in the very beginning thinking that Linux was spelled Lunix, L-Unix, as in it was just, you know, this knockoff version <laughs> of Unix. Uh, and it was for Lunix. <laughs> that was later. Though, so. You don't still feel that way, do you? Yes. Um, <laughs> um, and so I got my first shell account and I started, I learned the basics of like, uh, you know, using CD and stuff was fairly similar to Windows, although, you know, Windows, it was less specific about things like you need a space between the CD and the directory uh, and a little bit like that. But, um, you know, because I had grown up with the command line and then only later got into Windows 3.1 and then Windows 95 and so on, uh, I had always been familiar, at least with the command line. So, you know, swapping out dir for ls with an alias file that somebody had done by default already had helped me there. Um, and then I learned about tar and how to extract the archives. Wasn't that hard because I had used zip and rar and arge uh, archivers on the command line on DOS before. So it was really almost exactly the same concept. You just sort of had to translate those concepts to Exactly. New. Uh, command line arguments and stuff weren't foreign to me. Um, the one weird one with tar is that you have to specify the file with dash f rather than just being standalone right and i think the biggest one that catches people out on that is you know you put this bunch of letters in front of the you know tar minus blah 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 and you have to be very careful that the f is the last one because f takes something after it whereas the other ones don't uh and you know when i was teaching it sometimes i specifically do each flag separately instead of condensed just so that it would make more sense to people 
you know, I'm, I'm, all right, I'm going to extract the archive. I either want verbose or not. I usually don't because just spamming my terminal with a list of files isn't helpful. Um, and then uh, specifying the compressor is actually redundant on BSD tar because BSD tar can look at the file and just figure it out. I know see, which okay. one. So you don't actually have to put the, like the Z or the J or Petty whatever. Petty humans, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Or whatever, uh, and then the file, and so on. Uh, so I learned to like untar this software, and then do the whole like um, dot slash configure make or whatever. Uh, of course, you didn't do make install because you're not root on this machine, and a lot of them had a configure script spelled with a capital C. Oh gosh, uh, which is you know your introduction to the fact that it's Unix is case sensitive. Yep. Uh, that basically wrote the config.h file, um, which had you configured some basically compile time options before you run the configure script. So I have a, I have a question actually. Can, I have, I'm curious about a little bit earlier than that because you mentioned you had a bunch of command line experience in Windows, but how did you come to that experience? Um, so my very first computer was a 486DX2, 66 megahertz, with what turned out to be uh, an absolutely epic amount of memory, 32 megabytes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So when the machine arrived at my, so it was basically my cousin's old machine. Um, he worked at one of the big banks here, CIBC, uh, and he had upgraded the system to about as much as you could. And I think it was just when the Pentiums were just brand, brand new. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he had got a Pentium. Uh, and so he basically gave me, uh, sold me his 486, uh, which was still plenty good at the time. Uh, for example, when it arrived at my house, when he brought it, it still had 48 megabytes of memory in it. Just even that, that was like ludicrous. Uh, like a brand new Pentium you bought usually came with eight and would max out at 16. Right. But this thing was a compact that had this daughter board you could just fill with RAM. It just had awesome. more RAM <laughs> slots than anybody had ever seen. Um, <clears throat> so he's like, but yeah, the the top 16 megs of RAM in this belong to the bank, so I can't give you those. So I was down to 32, but it was fine. And it, it had Windows NT4 on it, I think, and, or 3.0. It would have been 3.51 or whatever. Anyway, reformatted it and put DOS 6.22 on it. Um, and I think Windows 3.1 right away. But I still did a lot of stuff in the command line. And he taught me about the command line. Um, he did a bunch of extra setup on it that I didn't understand at the time. But over time, I read it and learned it. Uh, so we had a, I guess it would have been a config.sys or an autoexec.bat that had a menu. Okay. So you could tell when you booted up the computer, you told it what you wanted to do on the computer. In particular, if you wanted to play games, it would disable the second floppy drive to give you lo- more memory in the below 640K area. Nice. Uh, and it would, uh, but it would still load the CD ROM driver and a couple other things. Whereas if I was going to copy floppies between my two floppy drives, I wanted both drives active. And so it had like three options for basically what kind of work you want to do on the computer and would reconfigure the memory for it. So it sounds like from the start, really like configuration and, and customizing your experience was. So I didn't understand any of that at the time. It was just, he had yeah, set but it, it sounds like it you magic, had a mentor but, really who yeah, was sort um, of. My problem was my mentor lived like an hour away. <laughs> That's so a problem. I, I didn't get to see him very often. And when I did, I was like extracting every little bit of information out of him <laughs> that I could. But a lot of it was just down to exploring by myself and so on. Uh, and, you know, lots of blunders uh, and so on. Like when That's I tried to use one of the best ways to learn double space or whatever to get more space out of the hard drives by compressing. It was the transparent oh. compression. Oh. But it was terrible and slow and okay. really hard to undo. <laughs> Did you did you lose some stuff? Oh yeah. Uh, so the machine had a 
500 megabyte Seagate drive and a 400 megabyte Connor drive. Both two, two drives, nice. Yeah. Both oh, scuzzy. okay. Uh, and then externally, it had a 1.7x CD-ROM drive, which is like this, like a foot and a bit long. <laughs> uh, and instead of the drawer, it had these caddies. So the, basically, it looked uh, like a jewel case. And you opened it, and you put the CD in, and then the bottom had this like inch and a half wide metal slider, like a floppy disk that slid out of the way to let it the the laser read the CD. Crazy. So it had two of these, and it basically it was almost like you stuck the whole jewel case in the CD drive, and it was one point seven x. So it wasn't two x, but it could read a little bit faster in real time. And then on top of that, there was an Adaptec tape drive, and I had like three tapes for it, and I did backups, although I don't think I ever did a restore. And then a 14.4 modem. So on top of the computer with all of its guts, there were three separate uh, <laughs> devices on the side. And SCSI meant there was this really fat, inflexible cable that came out of the back of the computer, went into the CD drive. Then another cable came out of a second port on the CD drive and went into the tape deck. And then eventually the last device in the chain had this terminator with a green light on it that would turn the signal around and make it go back the other way. And then each of those devices has this little... Uh, up, down buttons, and a number, kind of like the odometer in your car, but only one digit. And you'd have to program them to be on different channels so that they wouldn't conflict with each other. Of course, yeah. We've, and all we've come a long way. Yes. <laughs> and uh, so that experience, now to move sort of forward, yep. kind of led to your initial um, interest in BSD. And yeah. that just hasn't stopped since, exactly. it sounds like. So I got into IRC because uh, my other mentor became my neighbor, who mostly was just a gamer. But, That's a little bit closer, right? Less yeah, than an hour. Uh, Mostly just a gamer, but was early into the internet and told me about this thing called IRC. And he was on some IRC server that was in his friend's basement, but I didn't understand that yet. He just told me, you know, it's, I'm on this IRC server, it's in Vancouver. So I download an IRC client, look at the server list, and pick the very first one that says Vancouver, which happened to be this network called Afternet that didn't have very many people on it, but it turned out to be a reasonable place to get started because it wasn't so big as the big ones where, you know, it would be hard to talk to people. Uh, and so I got started on a slightly more smaller, friendlier network. Uh, but eventually I learned a bit about how that worked. Uh, I was on their virus busters team. So there was this virus that specifically went after MIRC, the client. It was called DM Setup. Uh, and we would find people who were infected with this uh, on the IRC network and we'd help them uninstall the virus, basically. Basically anti-malware before that was actually a thing. So I did that. Uh, and then eventually got into running my own IRC server, and that led into, oh, so there's this concept called services, where there's this basically a bot that has super user privileges and can do things like give away access. And it's, oh, those work by connecting as a fake server. Uh, and then a lot of the restrictions that that server imposes on a client don't apply when another server says something, you just believe them. Um, so that led to writing stuff in the MIRC scripting language, because oh, uh, that was the, my intro to programming, basically. Okay. Uh, I guess before the internet, on, in the BBS days, I'd done a little bit of QBasic uh, because I managed to get a pirated copy of QBasic and a couple of example apps. So I'd done basic things like, you know, what's your name? How old are you? Yeah. And then write a sentence based on it and right, so on. Right, right, right. Uh, I think the most complicated thing I ever did was try to write a math-solving program for these math problems our teacher would give us in grade eight or whatever. They were called Ordo. But basically, you would get like five numbers or four or five numbers, and then another number. And you had to apply whatever mathematical operations in whatever order on those numbers to get the final number as an answer. I see. Right? So it was like this plus that minus, you just 
some combination. So I wrote a QBasic program that would just brute force it and try every combination <laughs> and spit out one that was an answer. So I would always get the points. At the end That's of the awesome. Week. And so was it faster than you at figuring them out? Oh, hell yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, I wasn't brute forcing usually, uh, but yes, the brute force computer program, they're only like, right, you're going to maybe brackets, but basically add, subtract, multiply, or divide, or exp- exponentiate a number with the other numbers to get the answer. And in every order, you know. There are quite a few permutations, really, when, when yeah, you got four but, or five numbers. You know, computers can do how many of those permutations <laughs> per it, second right? yeah. versus me. I, I don't know why I was thinking about this problem recently. I think it was just I woke up early and stupid things that go through your head when you're trying to go back to sleep. Uh, and I was like, I could rewrite that program so much more elegantly now because I'm so much smarter. And I'm like, but why? <laughs> if I grade eight math problems are not something I should be thinking about right now, why can't I go back to sleep? <laughs> It's funny, like our childish brains are still in our, like, yeah. we're, they're still us, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, so then writing, the next big programming I did was writing stuff in the MIRC scripting language. Uh, and eventually, first started with just a bot that connected as a user. And when you type things in chat room that started with exclamation mark, whatever, yeah. it would detect that and do something. Uh, but eventually I'm like, I want it to be more powerful. So connect as a server is when I started to learn protocols. So actually speaking the server-to-server language. And I also learned how to, using Telnet, send an email with a fake from address right? and things like that. And so that led into more. And then eventually I got uh, Visual Basic 6 and started writing applications for that, almost all network-based, uh, you know, doing stuff with sockets. I wrote like my own chat thing originally, and then eventually that turned into an IRC client. And then I wrote a services thing. But some terrible hacks in there, like Visual Basic 6 didn't really have the concept of dynamic arrays. You could only do a fixed size arrays. Oh. So I used a hidden list box as my array. Oh, man. <laughs> so when it first connected and had to fill that list box, it was really slow because it was doing like the animations, even though it was un- wasn't yeah. on screen. And yeah. I was just like, this is terrible. I should probably learn how to do this properly. What I really wanted was a hash with a key. But the list thing the list box operator had a way to be like, give me the index of the object that has this number. And so there'd be one list box that was the name and it would map to the index. And then a second list box, you use the same index and it would have the value. And it was basically making a hash by using two list boxes. It was oh, terrible. <laughs> but it's how you could figure out how to do what yeah, you needed. And right? I so. learned more and more programming as I went. Right, right. So that's what I got into IRC. And I um, eventually wanted to run my own server. So I got a shell account. And the first one I got was from this little IS, uh, little provider guy. I think he was running it out of his house. He was paying AT&T uh, a ransomish amount of money for a T1. So oh, yeah. it's like 1.5 megabits. Right. Uh, but, you know, I had 33.6 dial-up at the time, so that was, that was fast. It was called lucida.qc.ca or something like that. It was in Quebec. But eventually he was getting DDoS attacks and AT&T wasn't willing to block them or at least even give him a break on the bandwidth cost of it. Because I think he was paying 95th percentile. So like he had the whole T1, but he wasn't paying a flat rate for right, it. So right. the usage would matter. And oh, gosh. the DDoS attacks eventually basically put him out of business. Uh, so then I went to another one and that one went out of business due to incompetence. And I went to another one and that was just poorly run. Gosh. And I was just like, I see where this is going. This is annoying. It's like, I could do this better myself. So this was, I think... The last year of high school, or maybe the second to last year of high school. Um, and at the high school, they were just talking about that they had this uh, Ontario government thing called Summer Company. 
you'd write up a business plan and so on and submit it. And ten, five students would get paid, uh, get $2,000 to start a business, run it for the summer, and you had to take these classes. If you passed the classes, you'd get another $2,000 at the end of the summer. So even if your business didn't make any money, you would still have the $2,000 uh, as a reward. But if it did, then you got to keep all that money and, and the $2,000 reward. Yeah, right. That's um, incentive. So I applied for that. But this is 2001 or 2002, so just after the dot-com crash. Um, obviously none of these people understood what IRC was or why people would want to host IRC servers. <laughs> and so it was just hosting. And then it was like, yeah, there are lots of web hosts around. What we, that's not going to be a thing. Um, so I made it to the top 10 and had the interviews with the people from the banks and so on that were the judges for this, uh, but didn't get selected for the top t- uh, five that actually got the money. Uh, but I had this whole business plan that I'd come up with, uh, and all the stuff. Um, and so my parents are like, well, we can loan you $1,000 to try. All right. Uh, and so they did. And uh, we bought our first machine with it. Uh, my friend had a company building computers uh, that I helped him out with. And so we cobbled together the cheapest server we could. It was like a, an AMD 1700 plus, an old beat up case and power supply that we got off eBay really cheap. Um <laughs> Only 256 megs of RAM, which was a reasonable amount, but not a lot. Uh, and like an 80 gig hard drive or something like that. But that's all you need. Yeah. And I that's the first time I installed FreeBSD on an actual machine. Oh, okay. Uh, and set it up and and basically had to learn to sysadmin it because, you know, there's one thing to sysadmin a machine where you're running a web server or something. It's different to sysadmin a machine when you're when other people are paying you to have shell access to the machine and run their own programs on it. Yes. You really have to learn to lock things down and understand how permissions work. I'm not actually sure exactly how I learned like the octal permissions and what they meant and how to set them. I did at some point. And like, I, well, I remember explaining it to people when I, later on when I was teaching, but I just, I, I'm not sure how I learned a lot of this stuff. It kind well, of it just sounds happened like a organically. Lot of it, yeah, that's it, right? A lot of it you learned just through necessity because you're going down this path and it's like, well, I need to be learning this right now because that's where I am right now. It sounds also like you're really motivated by like self-learning. Would that Uh, be accurate? Yeah. Um, It was mostly, you know, I pick up, like I recommend to people when they want to learn stuff is pick a project you want to do and then just kind of learn the pieces as you go. And so you don't want to pick something too complicated because you can easily, you know, get in too deep and then you, you feel stuck or that you're not succeeding. But um, just a group of things. Yeah. Kind of worked for me, but you know, different people learn different ways too. So of course. Yeah, of course. I, uh, I really kind of connect with your way of kind of having a goal and just diving in, even though at mm-hmm. that point you may not have any idea what you're talking about. Uh, but you're going to learn something along the way, whether it succeeds or not. Right. So yeah, that's and, really valuable. Uh, like programming, I learned a lot from reading the source code of other people's examples. So uh, websites like Planet Source Code, uh, which I don't think is still around, but it was huge collection of Visual Basic 6 examples on how to do stuff uh, or entire applications, but all, oftentimes just snippets. And just learning kind of those uh, idioms and stuff was helpful. Then one of the crazier things I did uh, was at first when we were running the IRC servers, we also ran them on Windows on my home computers as well. We didn't really understand how you compiled Unix code to work on Windows. It was complicated. But somebody just gave you this EXE and it worked. When we wanted to change some of the messages, we learned about these tools called hex editors. Yes. <laughs> they go into the EXE and change the string. Yeah. But 
if your string was suddenly going to be a different length, oh, you could run into problems. I understand. You obviously yeah, couldn't right. keep going because you would overwrite bytes or change. You, you couldn't change the byte positions. So this often meant slightly weird wording and trying to make it fit in the same length as the original extra one. spaces. You could put extra spaces at the end or whatever, <laughs> but uh, some of that and that often led to crashing because you know uh, not understanding that the strings are null terminated and that that part's important. That that last thing that looks like a space is not a space. It's the null terminator. And if you lose that, then the string is just going to keep going and bad <laughs> things are going to happen. <laughs> that sounds like a true hack to try yes. to, try to get it going. And then a little bit later on, got into actually using Unix for the IRC servers and editing the source code. And then you could change the strings as much as you wanted. And then I got into, well, you know, I've done a little bit of programming in a bunch of different languages now. I've done a tiny bit of Perl, a little bit of PHP, Visual Basic, et cetera. I can read ifs and whiles and fors and so on. Um, and so now I'm like changing little bits of the IRC server or like adding an extra command and figuring out how that worked. But I didn't really understand pointers and the difference between a pointer and the struct itself. Uh, and that led to some crashing and so on. But implemented some extra features in the IRC server, stuff like a command I could do that would cause it to the server to flood a specific user and make their connection not work and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> or just like give myself super, super user privileges. You do this, then there's just an if in a bunch of the different places where it checks if you have access. And it's like, oh, if this flag is set, it's Alan, and Alan could do anything. Nice. <laughs> like change other people's names and yeah, stuff. There's a benefit to being the owner of the system, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it just, that's got me into Unix. And then I got more and more into FreeBSD as I was having this first server and then a second server and on. The shell provider made a profit over its operational costs uh, starting the first month. So that was good. Wow. You know, well, we basically, it, we made enough money to pay for the co-location of the server. And then as it grew, uh, we were able to pay back my parents. I think I paid back about half and they forgave the rest as a present or whatever. As but, parents do. Yes. Uh, but, you know, I managed to grow that and it paid for college and everything for me. Amazing. Uh, I shuttered it in 2012, I think. About 10 years after it started, because, you know, uh, back then we could get away with charging people $15 to have access to basically, uh, to be one of 15 people on a server that had 256 or 512 megs of RAM yes. and one IP address and some stuff. Nowadays, for Things that much money, you can get a much better virtual machine to yourself where you have root. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that was how long ago, right? Yeah. So, you know, back in 2003, 2004, et cetera. Um, virtual machines weren't really a thing. Mm -hmm. uh, there was no accelerated uh, virtualization. So if you had a virtual machine, it was really slow. And yes, you know, if you wanted a whole server, you're talking hundreds of dollars a month, very limited bandwidth and so on. So yes, paying me $15 was a much better solution. And you got a system actually managed by somebody that knew what they were doing. Right. Uh, and all you had to do was run your three programs or whatever. You didn't have to worry about OS updates and stuff like that. Uh, and so, yeah. And so tell me how like that led to the room we're sitting in now, right? Because uh, uh, it yeah. has progressed into quite something else. Yeah. Uh, so the shelf rider I kept doing when I went, uh, so I started that in my, when I was 17, uh, I started when I was 16 and yeah, I just kept going from there. Um, so the year I turned 17, I started earlier in the year. Then when I went to college, I met some other people and I started looking a little bit more at consulting building websites and web applications and stuff. I guess near the end of high school, I did one other project, which is where I learned PHP and MySQL. It was uh, a local hardware supply company. Um, they had a like a paper 
catalog of all their products. When I was in high school, CD burners were relatively rare. So in my high school of 600 students, there were two. Mine and this other kid named Jeff. Jeff lived in the bigger town, so he had cable, and I only had dial-up. So Jeff specialized in music. Uh, so you give him a playlist, and he would download the songs and put them on a CD or whatever. And so I specialized in uh, PlayStation games because my neighbor knew a guy that could do mod chips. And so I basically, because I had I, my internet wasn't fast, but I could go and rent PlayStation games and right. then copy them. Right. Uh, and I had all the right stuff for it. Uh, I did that. So that's how I met Jeff. Uh, but eventually, uh, so Jeff was also into photography and stuff. And so he was actually taking the pictures of the products and to do this print magazine. Oh, uh, and he had got the job of building a website to let it wasn't, there wasn't actually going to be e-commerce, but it would let people browse the products and, and have the product number or whatever, and be able to call and order stuff. And so he basically subcontracted me to actually build the website part of it for the company was called Charles Jones or something like that. And they made like ridiculous things like the, the tools you use to do live power lines on the telephone poles. So it was like the gloves they use to like hold on to the wires and like the special plastic guards they put around them when they're re-putting them on new telephone poles and stuff. So it was very high industry stuff. And that basically, I said, yeah, sure, I can build this website. And I basically learned PHP and SQL as I did it. It was not a very well-built a application, <laughs> but the website worked fine. So it was great. So anyway, uh, so I'd done a couple of websites and stuff like that. So in college, I met some other people and we decided we were going to start this consulting company. And, you know, uh, we did like backups as a service and like going to people's offices and fixing computers and stuff like that. So as I graduated, I started doing that. It was not very successful. Uh, I had some work, so I wasn't starving, but it was, you know, kind of feast or famine like consulting often is. And right. Projects always take longer than it seems like you're going to. And my main project was actually helping that friend that had the computer company uh, build a website that did e-commerce and he sold the computer parts. So he would get these giant uh, Excel sheets from the three or four different suppliers he had of all the parts uh, and like how much they cost and what category they're in. And then we build a website out of that, kind of like a new egg or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and like some automated algorithms to add a percentage to the price based on the category. Like video cards, we charge a little bit more markup than we do for hard drives or whatever and built that. So anyway, the after I graduated from college, I was doing the consulting thing. It wasn't going especially well. Uh, but I had met the professor I had for intro to networking and then later Perl and um, Cisco 2 and a bunch of other things. And I had got along really well uh, and always talking about ideas we had for like one idea we had was to make a service to prove your identity. So like you would send us your like pay slip and so on. And we would certify to other people that this person has a job and makes money. Uh, or, you know, we've, we've seen their driver's license. This is actually the, this person is who they say they are. Huh. Mostly ideas we talk about while standing around in the hallway before class or whatever. Sometimes the best ideas come in yeah. those conversations. Uh, but because we had so many of those conversations, we got along really well. And then in, I guess, November of 20, 2008, uh, he called me and he was like, so my wife is pregnant and uh, I'm going to take paternity leave because I can get paid like 80% of my salary to, to basically remodel our house to, to make room for the extra kid. They need someone to teach uh, the Unix security class that uh, you had taken with me and, you know, got 100%. Like I had the highest score ever in this class. 
and says, you know, would you like to teach it? And I'm like, you know, I'm not very good at public speaking. You know, when I had to give a presentation in class in college, I was shaking so bad I couldn't read the piece of paper I was holding. <laughs> um, but he's like, well, just send them your resume and they will send back how much it pays. And I'm like, sure, okay. So I write up a resume and send it in. And they're like, yeah, so you'll start at like band three. You'll get $74.96 an hour. Um, and, you know, this, you're teaching two courses. Uh, so it's a four-hour lab class, and there are two different sections of it. So you'll teach the four-hour lab one day, and then on a different day of the week, you'll teach a different set of students the same thing. So really, it's not that much prep work either. Did, did the class being a lab class make it much easier for you? Um, yes. So, so hands on. at Mohawk, almost all the classes, when, when I was a student, there was usually a lecture part and a lab part, and it slowly evolved into basically having a mini lecture in the lab because it made more sense to have a small lecture, do something in the lab in a two hour class, and then have a second two hour class where you also had another lecture and more lab than having a one hour lecture in a lecture hall and then a three hour lab separate. And so this one was a slightly weird just because because the class was more complicated, just one big four-hour lab, uh, which was a bit of a slog, but at the same time probably required because if you couldn't finish it by the end of class, there wasn't really a way to resume. Like we were reformatting the computers you were sitting at right. for class, and so there wasn't a good way to pick up and resume. Nowadays, students bring a, a laptop hard drive that connects via USB and they just pull up their VM from last week and continue. But back then, that wasn't a thing. So I'm like, well, yeah, for that amount of money, sure, I'll give it a try. It's like, it's only 14 weeks, so if I hate it, uh, you know, after 14 weeks, I can stop doing it. And so then I moved back from the little town I was living in back into Hamilton here and started teaching these classes. I was a little nervous for the first five minutes, but, you know, hey, it's, it's Unix, uh, it's BSD specifically. Okay. I know this. I can just, you know, I'm, I'm t- have all the confidence I need to just explain this stuff to you guys. Uh, and the class went pretty well. And I uh, actually liked some of the students. And it was, uh, I felt like a lot of them got it. You know, the first class or two were a little rough. Most of these students had just come off an eight-month work term, almost all of them using only Windows. So in the first lab, when none of them could remember the flags for tar, yeah. I was like, hmm. <laughs> But, uh, you know, and that was always one of my pet peeves was people who tried to just memorize the flags instead of understanding what they're for. It's like, if you just try to remember XVZF or whatever, you're, you're never going to make sense of this stuff. If you know what they mean, if so, I want to extract the archive and it's gzipped and I want to, this is the file I want to extract, then you'll be able to figure it out every time. Or you can at least use the man page and know which flag you're looking for. Yeah, yeah. Whereas if you've just memorized this jumble of letters, it's never going to make sense to you. Yeah, I find for myself, like, especially the way my mind works, and I imagine for you much the same, is like, I have to almost understand the system before being able to, um, like, memorizing just doesn't work for me. Yeah. Um, I have to learn how it works to be able to use it. And so then flags just come naturally because you learn them through a different method, right? Yeah, and especially... In shell scripts, I do it for because it's self-documenting. But even on the command line, often I'll use the long flag okay. because that's how my brain works, right? I okay. know what I wanted to do, right? So rsync dash dash archive because yeah. I wanted to copy all the permissions and the users and stuff and dash dash progress. And, you know, using the long flags just because I know what they mean. Uh, whereas the short flags, sure, I can remember it's this bunch of them, but uh, 
it just fits better in my brain to do the long way. Right. And so did this teaching experience, like obviously it gave you more confidence with some public speaking because yes. you were kind of uh, a little bit yeah, freaked out about that. After a couple of weeks of that, I was like, oh, turns out this isn't that bad. Right. And I think about week three or four, they asked me, hey, I know you're teaching eight hours of class a week right now. This summer, we have 12 hours of class that you can teach and they're easier classes. It was like, uh, Microsoft admin one intro to TCP IP and intro to Unix. So it's, uh, instead of six semester classes, it was second semester classes because it was summer because people started in January. And I'm like, yeah, I've already moved back here. Uh, why not? It's, uh, I'll get an apartment instead of living in student housing. And yeah, sure. Was it kind of tricky though, to do the less technical stuff? Um, not really. The weird one in the summer was a little weird because it was actually the same 40 students. I was teaching three of their five classes they were taking that semester. So they had like a math class, an English class, and some other. And then they had like mainframes and one other class that was taught by some other guy. But I basically, oftentimes it would result in like, all right, we're doing a two-hour lab here on this subject. Then we'll go to the room next door and have a two-hour lab on a different (laughs) subject. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's crazy yeah so it's like microsoft class two hours late and then at the end of that two hours move to the next room over and have a two-hour unix class you probably got quite close with some of these people i yeah. imagine you're spending uh, lots of time and then with them. as i kept teaching after that they a lot of them ended up having me more to the point where when they were practicing for their final practical cisco exam they managed to con me into coming in on a saturday because i had keys to unlock the room and let them basically do a trial run of their uh, their practical lab for nice. the Cisco class. Nice. Uh, and I was also the faculty supervisor for the movie club at the college. So every, I think, Thursday night, we'd uh, take over one of the lecture halls and play terrible 80s movies. <laughs> Why not, right? Yeah, it was quite a bit of fun. <laughs> uh, and, and some of the students I met from that, uh, because, you know, they're basically my age, uh, are, are still people I hang out with. All right. Uh, so, you know, I had my birthday party last month and that's and some know, of them a were bunch there. of my best friends are people I met. That's that cool. Way. Well, uh, you obviously... Some of them I never had as, as students. Uh, though I think the, the very first day of class was actually weird. Uh, so when I got this, uh, the job offer and I, I knew I was only going to be working for three months at this time, I called up the landlord for... When I was in college, I lived off campus and basically I rented one room out of a house and the, the landlord rented the second room to my best friend and the third room to his cousin and the fourth room to some random guy. Uh, and we lived there. And over time, the random guy cycled out a bunch of times. But anyway. So literally random. <laughs> yes. Um, so when I needed basically temporary housing, it was like I, I needed a place for these three months. I, I don't want to sign a one-year lease for an apartment. Uh, and it was in January. And since the semester normally starts in September, Oftentimes people will drop out or something and land yeah, on an right, empty right. room in one of the couple of houses he has is, and he'd be able to give me a short-term lease. So I called him up and he's like, actually, I have the room beside the room you lived in uh, when you lived here is available right now. And I'm like, sure, that'll work. Uh, plus that one's green, whereas the one I had originally was pink. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I had that room um, and he rented to other students for the other rooms. So taught the first day of class. And uh, walk home from the college. It was like four or five minute walk. That's one of the reasons why I rented that place because it was so close to school. Um, I walk in the door and I'm taking my shoes off and stuff. And about two minutes later, behind me walks in one of the students. 
It's, he's definitely not one of the roommates because I've met all the roommates already. Okay. And I'm like, dude, what are you following me home for? It's like, what? You live here? <laughs> he was friends with uh, the guy that lived across the hall from <laughs> yeah, me, <right>. Matt. Uh, <laughs> and so, the, you know, one of the kids from my class was, turned out, hung out at my house a lot because he hung out with uh, Mike or Matt who lived across the hall from That's me. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that was weird. And so... Uh, fast forward and you had those teaching experiences. Yeah. So I taught for about three years. Then the one summer they only had four hours of coursework for me and it was a, what's called a service course. So it was the IT department teaching a course in some other uh, faculty. So it was like um, database fundamentals for the like secretarial courses or something. Uh, and I had taught that one once before, and it was really annoying because the practical part made sense. It was Microsoft Access for secretaries building forms to fill out databases and stuff. But it also had a lecture component in a lecture hall that was like IBM mainframe database design. Weird. Like about, you know, the uh, fix with fields and, and data types and stuff, none of which had any applicability to these students at all. And so the written exam was always a slog of just these poor people who just want to be secretary oh, <laughs> uh, having to learn all this database theory that was zero applicability to them. Uh, and I didn't really enjoy that teaching that uh, because, you know, the students were not really interested in it. Doesn't sound like it was their fault. Exactly. And so I'm like, I'll just take the summer off because I've taught continuously every semester without a break uh, at this point. So I taught three, seven or eight semesters or something like that. So I took a summer off. Uh, and around that time is when uh, Scale Engine, the the video streaming company, which wasn't a video streaming company yet, um, was finally getting to the point where it could afford to pay me to work full time. And so I got to focus on that for a couple of months. But come September, I went back to teaching, but found that I was really not enjoying it very much anymore because I was basically teaching the same courses I had taught three or four times already. And the students were getting less and less interested every time. Like that first cohort of students I had was very close in age to me. Like they had started around when I was finishing and so on. And so, you know, they were the type of students who grew up without a computer at home and eventually got one and it was interesting and they want to learn all about it or whatever. Whereas when I transitioned to teaching students that were just starting out, they were getting to the point where, you know, there had just always been a computer at home and it was like the TV. You turned it on, you it's an appliance. comes out and you turn it off and you don't really care how it works. You know, it, it like floored me when this one student be like, I bought a DVD burner and I don't know how to install it in my computer. I'm like, you're in fourth semester of this <laughs> oh my sysadmin course. How is like, oh, right. People don't take their computers apart anymore. Oh. It's like, what? This person bought, when, when I was in school, anybody in the class would have been embarrassed to admit they bought their computer at a store rather than built it themselves. And these guys is like, Weren't embarrassed to admit they had never opened their computer. Oh, so things would clearly change. <laughs> yeah. Obviously. Uh, and so the level of interest in, it's just like, oh, command line's scary. I don't want to do that and stuff. And it was just so teaching is a class of 35 to 40 students about Unix. And there are four of them who actually care. Yeah. That's, just started to grade on me a little bit. Of course. So time to move on. Right? Yeah. And, and I had Scale Engine was starting to take off. and I, So tell me a little do. bit more about Scale Engine. Your co-founder? Yes. Yeah, so my co-founder was that professor I had mentioned. Okay. Uh, so we, when I was doing consulting, we had traded off with each other and do things. Uh, I'm going on vacation cover for me for a couple of weeks or whatever. Uh, his focus was mostly email and uh, SEO uh, because his degree is actually in linguistics, not computers. So he wrote a bunch of Perl scripts that would um, 
change the language on the website on a regular basis, but make sure that a versus an and things like that were always correct. That's fascinating. Um, and had just learned all the stuff about the Google algorithm and be able to, so he did like uh insurance hotline and a bunch of these other websites that were, you know, trying to sell car insurance, whatever he'd done SEO for them. Uh, whereas I was more on the hosting and Unix side. Uh, he had some Unix stuff and like I said, mail servers and stuff, but his focus had been email and SEO and mine was more um, the hosting side. And we had gotten together uh, and then, yeah, so he called me about doing this teaching for him. Uh, after he came back, uh, after his paternity leave was over, um, we started hanging out more and talking more uh, and we decided to combine our consulting companies and work together. Uh, so we started what was called Near Source IT, which is basically the opposite of outsourcing, basically. Or it was outsourcing, but to a near shore instead of a far one. Right. We went looking for office space, mostly because when Stefan was working at home, his wife at the time would come home from work and be like, you were home all day. Why is the vacuuming not done? Oh, like, yeah. Well, I was working. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Uh, so he's like, if I have an office somewhere, I'll leave the house and it'll make more sense. Didn't work. But anyway, uh, so we had this office. We were looking for office space. And one of the places we looked was the back room of this bubble tea cafe uh, near Stefan's house. No way. <laughs> uh, we're like, it'd be a fine place to work, but it wouldn't be a good place to try to invite clients to or something. Unless uh, they like we, bubble we had, tea. We had visions of, of actually inviting clients over, although in our actual office, we almost never did. But um, we're like, this would be great. Uh, so this bubble tea cafe had all the board games and stuff. It's like, this would be great for an internet gaming cafe. You know, set up a bunch of computers and have computer games that people play by the hour. Like there was one of these at the college when I was a student, but it had shut down at some point. We're like, it'd be really cool for that. But bootstrapping it would take a bunch of money and we'd have to um, pay someone to sit here all the time because we can't do it because we're teaching. Uh, and yeah, it just, that won't work. But after two days of thinking about it and so on, I'm like, what if we could automate it? So I sat down in Visual Basic and wrote a bunch of software that would basically do the kiosk type system on the on the computer. And you like you log into the XP machine with the username and password from our website, which is validated against LDAP running on yeah. uh, a FreeBSD server using Samba to pretend to be a Windows NT4 domain controller because the Samba 4 wasn't out yet and Windows XP could connect to an old NT4 domain controller that Samba could simulate. And it would apply a bunch of group policies, although they were hard to manage back then because you had to actually make a, a registry.dat file that it would apply rather than actual group policy type stuff because it was Windows NT4 group policies. Right. But we disabled a bunch of stuff and it would like log you out when you ran out of time. And then if you just went to the, the cashier at the Bubble Tea Cafe, give them your username and pay them money, they will type it in on a laptop we set up for them and it would add money into your account and you could continue to play games. Nice. <laughs> and we got a Steam Cafe license, which I didn't know was a thing, but we paid $10 a month per machine and we got like all the Valve games and 100 wow. other games. Wow, really? Uh, most of the 100 other games were like the pop cap things like Bejeweled, so they weren't yeah. that useful. But having Left 4 Dead when that first came out, uh, and like Call of Duty, or not Call of Duty, uh, Counter-Strike and a bunch of that stuff. And we installed WoW on all the machines. Okay. Uh, and, you know, especially with Left 4 Dead being this four-player co-op thing, it was attractive to of have course. all four people of in the same in the room be able to do this. So we ended up doing that. And we bought a bunch of machines that looked like that. And so and how many so machines are we talking? We bought five. Okay. And then we had a junker machine that ran the domain controller because uh, it also did a thing. It had a screen on it because you could use the web browser on it to sign up for an account and pay with a credit card. Okay, that makes uh, sense. In, in the cafe as well. So that, again, 
the idea was not requiring any staff. That didn't really go very well. And we eventually did find an office and, and rent it. So as I quit teaching, I got sucked in by one of the other professors at the college into this um, startup incubator thing they were doing. It wasn't really a startup thing, but um, they had government grant money to help to use students to help businesses improve their automation and stuff. So like they had done one with the Ferrero Rocher plant in Brantford uh, and improved the efficiency by like 15% by getting a bunch of students from the um, process automation class, uh, improving like the conveyor belt systems and so on. Uh, and so I got tapped for this project. It was uh, a board game called Outsmart, which was this weird cross between Trivial Pursuit and Poker. Um, I can't picture it. <laughs> so there are trivia questions, and okay. each question has at least six right answers. So you roll the whoever's turn it is rolls the dice, and it comes up with a number, and everybody writes down that many right answers. I see. I see. I see. And then I you see. play them like poker cards, <laughs> and you only get a point if yours hasn't been used up. Crazy. So you're mostly playing against the other people. Like uh, most of the trivia questions were designed not to be hard, and also there's only so many questions that have six right answers, and I, so like. My favorite example question was all of the words from the Peter Piper nursery rhyme that start with the letter P. So basically everybody should know most of these, right. if not all the answers. And But you can only write down four because uh, that's what the dice came up with this time. So you write down four. But you want to be like, well, if I'm going first, do I want to use Peter right away so nobody else can get it? Or is everybody else going to not pick Peter because... Uh, so they think like, I'm going to use it first. Yeah, it's a psychological uh, and so thing. So maybe I will, I'll use it, but I won't say it first. I'll use up one of the other ones to steal somebody's Interesting. point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it was kind of okay. I have a box copy upstairs somewhere. Uh, it never sold that well. But the idea, uh, you know, this is 2010-ish. So Facebook games are all the mm. rage. So like, we're going to convert this to a Facebook game. Uh, you can write the back end and then we'll get some Flash Studio to make a nice front end for it. And it'll make tons of money. So I worked on that project and I wrote this whole back end for it. Uh, it is my first real experience with doing the proper software design lifecycle stuff, like doing all the planning and the flow charts before you actually write the code. Worked out really nice. A new skill. So I wrote all the back end for this, but then they, you know, they kind of never came through with the money to get a studio to write the front end. Oh no. So uh, we hired a co-op student to write a simple like jQuery engineering web interface so we could actually play the game and try it uh, and make sure all the rules worked and so on. Because we had to deal with some stuff like, turns out when you're doing this in person, you don't have to necessarily spell the word exactly right. But if we're going to have this game play online and the computer has to judge, spelling's going to count. And, uh, you know, web browsers didn't have built-in spell checkers and stuff yet then. Okay. Uh, so we had to, like, come up with this way of, like, getting common misspellings for most of the answers to know if they were right and so on. Anyway, so we hired this co-op student and uh, he mostly worked while I was gone uh, after I finished with this test. So it was, yeah, here's all the code Alan wrote, use it and build a front end. Uh, and that went from there. So during that semester, after I finished teaching, but while I was working at the startup incubator, we had had Scale Engine, which was mostly doing uh, large-scale hosting. So we hosted forums and things like that that had scalability problems. Okay. So we hosted, like, that's also how I got involved with JB, which I guess I'll tell that story in a second. Sure. But we hosted big forums like hackintosh.org uh, because that's where you learned how to root an iPhone. <laughs> yeah. And so they would have huge traffic spikes. 
I met them because I'd, I had uh, my shell provider had hosted their IRC server forever. And so they wanted me to host a website. And at one point it was like three whole servers dedicated to the website and it was falling over all the time because it was still, you know, Apache and MySQL and so on. So with Scale Engine, we had invented this better system of basically uh, a grid computing kind of thing, we called it. Uh, but we used uh, FreeBSD jails and ZFS. and Well, we weren't using ZFS yet, but uh, FreeBSD jails and so on. And we split the load up and did it all well. Uh, and so we hosted Hackintosh.org, Mangashare, Jupyter Broadcasting's forum, uh, and a couple other things. Uh, and it was doing pretty well. But the Mangashare one was all these giant JPEGs. And they were starting to hurt our bandwidth quotas. So we were at... Uh, Mountain Cable, the local cable ISP, we had half a rack as a co-location. And while we could burst to a gigabit, we were only paying for like 20 megabits. And if we went over that, if if 95% of the time we weren't under 20 megabits, we had to pay extra. So having people downloading all these big JPEGs during prime time was starting to be a problem. And they had also complained that, you know, people in Europe were having slower downloads. So we rented two servers, one in Seattle and one in Germany, and rsynced a copy of all the JPEGs over to them. And made subtle changes to the website so they would use a different DNS name to load the uh, images. And so now the images would come to these two dedicated servers that were just, they instead of having a uh, the bandwidth quota based on the number of megabits, it was you can send 10 terabytes a month. And so we offloaded these images into these two servers. And basically, over time, accidentally and created a CDN. Oops. <laughs> um, and so that grew. And then... Uh, this company called Enrelate, which made a related content plugin for WordPress, but not a clickbaity junk one. It was no words, just a picture of a product. And if you clicked on it, it would take you to go buy it. So like, if the article was talking about shoes, it would have like a picture of a Nike and you click it and whatever. It was uh, like Outbrain or any of those other clickbaity things, except for not junky clickbait, actual products you might want to buy that were actually related to the content. And they grew to the point where they were doing like 5 billion transactions a month on us, like uh, downloading 5 billion images. Oh, yeah. Uh, and so we had to ex- massively expand. Yeah. Like we had servers doing thousands of requests a second uh, out of memory with Varnish. And we huged up our CDN, added lots and lots of servers. And we had to improve our GeoDNS system. So at the time, we were using Bind, the typical DNS server. Uh, with it had what were called views, which were mostly meant to do a split horizon thing of like inside my network, this the website resolves to the internal IP of the web server and outside it resolves to the outside IP. But we used that with a giant summarized set of subnets to break the world up into like eight regions. No way. <laughs> uh, and so Bind would use like two gigs of memory and take like 10 minutes to reload the config. It was terrible. Oh, man. <laughs> and eventually we replaced that with this app called GDNSD, which was written by a developer at Logitech to geographically distribute their driver downloads. And it did basically the same job, but much, much, much better as we switched to that. And so Scale Engine was finally getting big, and I was uh, now working on it full-time almost. We were still doing the consulting thing on the side, and we had this one customer that was building uh, an interview system. So it was basically when you submit your resume to work at this bank, you would also use your webcam to attach a five-minute video kind of introduction of yourself. Got it. Uh, and the bank could then use this to screen people based on language skills and just presentability and so on. Uh, before they would do like a phone interview with you and before an in-person interview. Uh, and for this, we had got a copy of this uh, video server software called Wowza. So then one day we get an email 
uh, from this random radio station in Finland called Spin.fm. And they wanted to do a live stream of their DJ, like mixing the music or whatever, and put this on their website. And we're like, well, we're basically a static CDM. We mostly only deliver JPEGs and CSS files and so on. But we have a copy of this video server software that we were using to test this thing for a client. Sure, we'll throw it on our server in Germany and set this up and you can have this live stream. Uh, And it worked and worked quite well and we were happy with it. And then one day they got more than 100 people watching at once. And the stream was about one megabit. And the server had a 100 megabit connection to the internet. Yeah. Uh, And so when you had over 100 people, all of them would get buffering. See, when you're doing like downloads uh, of say like the podcast episodes, when we were hosting the podcast downloads for Jupyter Broadcasting, if you hit the maximum bandwidth of the server, everybody's download just goes a little bit slower. They probably don't notice everybody's happy. Video streaming, as soon as you get near the limit, everybody's streams are Everybody notices, yes. So we had to upgrade that server to a gigabit and buy a second server in France with a gigabit and another copy of the server software. Uh, and then, you know, eventually video streaming took over everything. Uh, and we basically stopped doing the CDN stuff except for the Jupyter Broadcasting downloads. Oh, cool. And so now Scale Engine is just focusing on the video stuff. Yeah. And is quite a bit bigger. Yes. Uh, it went from just... Uh, that professor and I who started the business together, uh, originally it was the consulting company and it kind of morphed into the hosting company, which then morphed into the video streaming company. And then the co-op student that we uh, used on that Outsmart project, the game project, he had proven that he could take a bunch of code I wrote and finish it. Uh, which so is we useful. Hired, <laughs> uh, so we hired him at Scale Engine to build, to improve our control panel. So we had this control panel we exposed to customers uh, that let them control some of the stuff in their account. Uh, that I had written and it needed a lot of work and I was busy managing all these servers and adding new servers and stuff. Uh, so we hired him as a developer and he basically writes PHP and Java for us. PHP to improve the control panel and website uh, and API and then Java f- are modules for the video server. And then eventually we hired uh, a sysadmin uh, as a co-op student and then hired him full-time when he uh, graduated. And then uh, this year we've had a second sysadmin in as well. Right. So you've got a whole crew here. And, yeah. uh, but tell me like maybe three stats of how many servers are operating, how much right. data. So we maybe. have somewhere around 110 or 120 servers spread across 36 different data centers wow. in 12 countries. Wow. Okay. And lots uh, of data, I imagine. Yes. Uh, huge amounts of storage. Uh, you know, if you count the redundancy, uh, basically, Everything's uh, all the recordings of all the videos are stored on uh, in a rack of servers in Toronto, but they're also replicated to a rack of servers in my basement here, because uh, you know, basically it was a good excuse to have the offsite backups in my basement because a they're easier to access if you ever need to pick them up and drive right. them to the data center, but it was also a great excuse to get gigabit internet at home. Um, <laughs> well done. <laughs> yes. Well, and Pushing so maybe petabytes of bandwidth a month. Yeah, tons and tons, I'd imagine. Yeah. Um, and you're still having fun doing it? Yeah. Uh, things have changed quite a bit over the years. Uh, obviously, Flash mostly dried up and went away, and we switched over to HLS, HTTP live streaming, uh, which originally was just the Apple protocol, but it was pretty standard now. Uh, it was nice when browsers like Firefox finally could do it natively mm-hmm. instead of needing a player. Mm-hmm. Things have changed a lot more recently with uh, YouTube and Facebook and Twitch and so on giving it away for free. We've lost a lot of the smaller things like churches and community centers and city halls. Uh, and mostly now our focus is on uh, more pay-per-view type content. Right. 
where basically you're paying to watch it. And so they want it on a, a platform that provides access control and stuff like Scale Engine does. Right. And so you mentioned Jupiter Broadcasting in there. Maybe yes. that's a really nice segue to talk a little bit about, well, A, like the serendipitous connection there, it sounds like, but yeah. also how you got really involved in that. Yeah. Uh, so we'll start at maybe podcasting. Sure. Um, so I don't know if podcasting was even technically quite a thing. I guess it was a, a bit of a thing at this point. Right. Yes. The definitely podcasting did exist because I was watching like, um, dig.tv or dig nation and, uh, some Leo Laporte stuff and so on. So I've basically run my own IRC network since I was like 16 or 17, uh, whenever I got the internet. And it turned out that one of the networks I linked up with was the home of the chat room for Chris Perillo, uh, for his like locker gnome or whatever it was called at the time, his online community after he had left tech TV, uh, which was like an actual cable channel you could subscribe to. And it would, Right. They had like a show called The Screensavers where people would call in for help when they would help them. And, okay. Or no, so there was one called Call for Help that was just answering people's questions and other stuff. And for a while, that Call for Help show was hosted by this guy, Chris Perillo. Um, but anyway, he used our IRC servers for his chat room. And around that time is when services like Ustream.tv and uh, Justin.tv were kicking off. And at the time, Justin.tv, which basically what became Twitch, was live streaming for like these two specific people, like Justin and Justine. And no I think way. about the 10th person or so was Chris Perillo to okay. get on this service. And then it's things, live streaming started to become a little bit more popular and services like Ustream.tv popped up and Livestream.com, uh, which I think was still called Mogulus at the time. Because Perillo was on the West Coast, uh, it meant that on his website, in the kind of morning hours of East Coast time, it was a live stream of his office with the lights out, which just had these uh, things called ticks clocks. Uh, so it's a clock, and it's got like, uh, for the hour, it's got like three cells and then nine cells. And, and then it's the number of lights that are on in each cell that tell you the time, but it changes every couple of seconds so that it it's interesting. Cool. Yeah. It, it looks cool, but it's tell, you can tell the time from it. Okay. Uh, so it would just be like those, and his monitor is dark, and the lights are out in the room. Uh, so we convinced him, we built a bot that when... If you're on a certain approved list, if you typed a command in the chat room, it would swap out the player on the website with the Ustream URL for somebody else. That's awesome. Uh, so I would take over this live stream and just, you know, basically answer questions from the chat room or yell at people uh, or whatever was entertaining at the time. <laughs> uh, so this it was kind of the beginning of live streaming and so on. And he also, uh, most evenings, would record stuff uh, basically a video podcast uh, and post it to YouTube. And so I collaborated in those in basically what was the precursor for TechSnap. Uh, so we'd look at news articles and then try to explain the technical aspects of it to people. Like I think one of my favorite ones was there was one about um, PGP, uh, the company that made originally invented the um, asymmetric email encryption stuff, also made a full disk hard drive encryption thing. And the news was about it. And Chris Frillo got it confused with PHP and was like, well, what does PHP have to do with hard drive encryption? So I had to explain the whole concept. But basically, when they were encrypting your hard drive, they were encrypting it to two keys, your key and their recovery key, uh -huh. so that you could always call them if you forgot yeah, your password. Right. Except for it turns out you could call Lie and get some and recover somebody else's encrypted disk. Making it not very Making useful. Making it useful. Yeah. Uh, and, explain, and then there was like one episode where somebody asked a question about 
just like how many fans do I need to cool my computer or whatever? And I, which is a complicated a whole, answer. Actually, yeah, I had a whole diatribe about it, about like using the rubber grommets to, to reduce the vibrations and like how static pressure yep. and stuff. So like how fast the fan goes versus how hard it blows and all this other stuff. Uh, so I did those of those. Uh, I was being put in. So it was Chris's face, and he was talking to me, but I was coming in over Ventrilo or something terrible, low quality and stuff. Uh, but I did that. And we, our, our IRC network started getting used by a bunch of other podcasts and stuff because uh, it turned out we, were, we had a good uh, Flash-based web client so that you could embed this thing on your website and people would end up in your chat room without having to download an IRC client or know what that is. And I think it was Mike Linux NL or somebody moved Jupyter Broadcasting over to my IRC network. Okay. But they weren't all that big usually. But one day... I was looking, I noticed their chat room had over a thousand people in it. I was like, that is highly unusual. I wonder if it's a bot attack or something. Oh, so I, I joined see. the channel to see what's going on. And one of the ops named Jeremy uh, asked a question, which was, what is the name of Captain Porthos's dog? Sorry, Captain Archer's dog. And I answered Porthos. It, I don't, it wasn't cheating, but because I was on the hub my answer would probably have shown up on his screen sooner than anyone else's. <laughs> right. Uh, and then they're like, Alan wins. I'm like, I win what? And it was actually, they were doing a giveaway for closed beta invites for Star Trek Online. Okay. Uh, because Jupiter Broadcasting had this podcast right. called Stoked right. about uh, Star Trek Online. Uh, I had no idea what any of this was. I had heard rumors about a Star Trek MMO, and I was kind of interested as a Star Trek fan, but not that interested. Uh, but with closed beta invite, sure, I'll get into this. And it ended up, uh, I set up a TeamSpeak server so that all of us who from JB who had access and were going to play could talk to each other while playing because that was something you did back then. But then the other problem was they had this, the Jupiter Colony Forum, which was basically the website where we had all the chalk about all these podcasts. All the people trying to get closed beta invites or uh, when open beta started were just knocking this website over right because it was just hosted at a regular like 20 dollars a month web hosting I see. shared web yeah. hosting company yeah right and then the web hosting company tells chris is like yeah we're disabling your account because your traffic is too much for us it's killing our server we can rent you a dedicated server for like 400 dollars a month but we can't help you move all your site over to it and stuff chris is like well i just can't <laughs> afford that and i don't know how to move this stuff and i'm like turns out hey chris i run this company called scale engine we specialize in hosting really busy forums. Uh, and so we ended up, uh, we convinced the ISP to unlock the account so we could get in. I downloaded all the files and dumped the database and got it all running on our system and the site ran fine. Eventually we added a separate forum specifically for the, um, the guild or whatever we started for all the, all the Jupyter people playing okay. uh, the, the game. Uh, and so that's how I first that's dug crazy. my uh, teeth into JB. Uh, so I was basically watching the shows uh, and uh, hosting the Jupiter Colony and the Jupiter Force forums. Then the server they had to host the Jupiter Broadcasting website started having a hard, failing hard drive. Uh-oh. Uh, and so to save money and stuff, we moved that website over to Scale Engine as well. Uh, and then we had been doing live video streaming by then. So we switched the live stream for JB away from Ustream to Scale Engine. And at the time, Chris had been using a service called blip.tv to host the downloads. Because for $10 a month, they offered unlimited downloads no of all way. videos. Yeah, right. Yes, until they ran out of money. Well, that and doesn't sound. Yeah. all the videos disappeared and <gasps> there was nothing to be done. 
Like they went out of business hard. They didn't just be like, oh, you have to pay us now if right. you want to use bandwidth. It's like, actually, we overdid it and we're completely out of money and we're just gone now. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we put them up on the scale engine CDN. We managed to get a bunch of the older episodes and get them all posted and update the website so that people could watch the shows. Uh, and that's how we all basically all the downloads came from scale engine. Jupiter Broadcasting paid us for those, but the live streaming we did uh, for them as well. I participated in some of the shows, like just as a regular viewer. So like there was the the faux show where we'd have like, you know, send in a picture of your desk setup or whatever, and they'd pick the desk, the best ones or whatever. And I think I submitted a couple of things for the Stoked podcast about like, uh, I had reverse engineered some of the math on how the weapon damage worked and okay. stuff <laughs> and wrote some strategy guides on how to fight the Orion versus the Klingons. Nice. Turned out to be, I was putting too much thought into <laughs> I invented all these tactics and it turns out if you just spam the button, you could win and it didn't matter. But anyway, <laughs> um, <clears throat> then I did uh, an interview on the Linux action show about FreeBSD 8, I think when it came out and that went pretty well. And so I ended up recording a couple of offline segments and submitted them and they used them to pad out shows on a couple of episodes where they were short on content. Okay. Uh, and then one day Brian canceled it last minute. And I was around, so I ended up hosting an episode of the Linux Action Show with Chris. And then that started happening more and more often. And then there was one point where I hosted it for like months straight. But anyway, uh, along that line, uh, Chris and I started TechSnap, which Chris originally envisioned as something more like No Agenda or what ended up becoming Unfiltered. Okay, broadcasting. right. The first couple stories we covered suddenly transitioned away from things like drones and more to like... Dropbox getting hacked, the Sony PSN network hack, and a bunch of this other stuff. And so just it kind the of timing. went in a different direction. Right, just the a timing little, of it sort of set the stage, right? Yeah. So it went a little different direction than I planned, and a lot different than Chris planned, I think. And But he ended up doing uh, Unfilter separately anyway. Uh, so yeah, then I was doing TechSnap, and that was going really well. People were really enjoying the home server stuff and so on. Uh, and then when I was hosting the Linux Action Show, you know, my understanding of Linux was a little more vague and most of it I'd ever used was more on the server side or even home server, whereas most of the Linux Action Show audience was about desktop. Right. And yeah. I wasn't really into that. And so I wasn't as popular. <laughs> uh, I think Matt Hartley ended up taking over eventually. Okay, but that's true. I did host the Linux Action Show for about four months straight, wow. like, plus a lot of sporadic episodes in between. And the other, that because it was on Sunday, it was less of a scheduling thing, but uh, again, that was ended up two days a week doing podcasts was sometimes a bit much. And where did BSD Now come into that? Uh, so yeah, after we've been doing TechSnap for a long time, uh, did it for 300 episodes, which is 300 weeks, which yeah. is like crazy. Six years, something like that. Uh, somebody in the chat room suggested a show just about BSD. And I was like, I don't think there'd be enough content every week to do a podcast about BSD. Uh, so I challenged that person to write the first the show notes for the first three episodes. Nice. And if they could come up with enough stuff for three episodes in a re short enough amount of time, then it meant there was enough stuff and we could probably do it. Uh, and it turned out there was. Uh, and uh, TJ was our, our producer for the first 100-ish episodes, I think, or 150. First 100 episodes or so uh, before he quit to get it day job <laughs> right <laughs> um but he did a really good job of like uh we had an interview scheduled like every single week and all the show notes written ahead of time and it was very nice after that we had jt take over uh he's 
now does a very good job. It was a bit rough at the start because he was less familiar with BSD, but I did manage to get him a job doing BSD full time. So that helped him uh, get to know BSD a bit better. Right. <laughs> and so, yeah, we just uh, started it up and I asked around and turned out Chris Moore was available and he did it for the first 150 episodes. And then uh, when he got promoted at work to being in charge of the whole Freenas project, uh, he needed, uh, you know, he couldn't dedicate his Wednesdays to doing the podcast anymore. Yeah. And so that's uh, why we have Benedict. Although it was around that time where I was having to resign from TechSnap because of my own time limitations. Uh, and so I had asked my friend Dan to take over TechSnap. If I had known Chris Moore was leaving BSD Now, it would have been me and Dan doing BSD Now. Uh, but it didn't work out that way. And so Life throws after you asking curveballs. everybody else, I got stuck with Benedict. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, Benedict was my mentor uh, when I joined the FreeBSD project. Okay, so. really? Okay. So you guys yes, have a uh, lot of history so, for sure. Uh, I actually had three mentors to start because I was doing a rather complicated thing, writing a whole uh, handbook chapter on ZFS. Right. But, uh, so I had uh, Warren Block, uh, Benedict Reuschling, and Eaton Adler. And it sounds like the BSD project being, um, you know, not as large, let's say, as some of the other projects out there. You really get to know some people yeah. uh, quite Although, closely. It's it's funny to think about that. Technically, the Linux project, as in the kernel, is what, 15 people? Fair enough. It, it's it's Linus, and he has a bunch of subsystem lieutenants. Fair and enough. They're the only people that can commit stuff to the repo. And actually, I think Linus does all of the commits, right? And the other people just approve things and send them to him. In FreeBSD, 150 or 200 people that can have direct write access to the kernel slash OS repo and another 200 and something people that have access to the port street, which is our package system to that repo. And I think about 60 or so people that do docs. Uh, So quite a huge web of trust really could be a larger community, Uh, well, a larger team working on the core stuff. And then, yeah, BSD contributors is a couple thousand people, whereas Linux maybe is 10,000, but and then again, how many people actually contribute to Linux? Although the distros make it a little different because, you know, it coming up with a set of packages and choosing the themes is technically a contribution. Fair enough. Uh, for a Linux distro, especially a desktop one. And, you know, not to diminish that, that's an important contribution. Uh, yeah, so in some ways, the BSD project could technically be considered bigger than Linux in that it's the whole kernel and the whole S. So it's all of li- Linux plus all of the GNU project itself plus some other stuff and big things like a f- uh, the file systems uh, all as one project. Right. So it just depends how you're measuring or what you're yeah. measuring or what you care about, right? Exactly. Uh, and that's th- actually one thing I'm really interested in is like, you know, there's this kind of joking rivalry between Linux people and BSD mm-hmm. people, which I think is a bit of hot fuzz. But I think there's also some like um, misconceptions about what yeah. BSD might be mm-hmm. uh, and how great the community there is and how you've said that even a lot of people who started on Linux have gone to BSD and have loved it and you can love both, right? It's not yeah. like it needs to be exclusive. So No, it's like, I don't hate Linux. It's just all of my experience means that when I want to do something, I know exactly how to do it on BSD. And when I try to use Linux, it's always getting in my way. Well, and I've heard like Chris, for instance, say the exact opposite, which is he just happens to have all of his experience in Linux. And so when he has a free NAS server, for instance, then he's less familiar. So there's that yes. natural like inclination to go towards a what little you know. bit of that. But I've found that most of my Linux experience when I do build some up gets thrown away. Like I learned Red Hat Linux nine. 
or just Red Hat 9 or whatever it was called back in the day. And that stuff took me all the way up to CentOS 6, meaning that when I learned this stuff years ago, I could still apply it then. But when CentOS 7 came out and they changed everything. Oh, I uh, see. And so like all my knowledge about how to configure the network went out the window. All my knowledge about this and then and, and all the different Linux distros. Like I remember when Debian broke something by changing the what flags meant in chpass on Debian and stuff. And I'm not saying that it's always bad to move fast and break things and so on. But I found that Linux has been a lot more willing to just throw away all the built-up knowledge I have and make me learn something new. So it's like you're losing your investment, kind of. Yeah. yeah. Whereas all the skills I learned in FreeBSD 4 in 2002, almost all of that still applies exactly the same today in FreeBSD 12. So you get to just keep building on top yeah. of the knowledge and building I mean, over it. The, and the package manager changed slightly. Okay. Uh, <laughs> that's the main thing that's changed. So like I said, I started using BSD as a user in about 2001, 2002, uh, and mostly was just a consumer of it and didn't really know. But it's like, oh, writing the OS is much too complicated for me. But in twenty uh, in 2006 or so, uh, when I was just finishing college, uh, the professor, Stefan, um, had mentioned, uh, you know, he had gone to a BSD can, this conference in Ottawa about BSD, and it was really good. And he had learned about Varnish and Nginx and a bunch of other stuff. And so we had talked about going together some year. And then, you know, uh, a couple of years later, then it was like, oh, shit, it was last week. Or, oh, oh no. it's too soon <laughs> and we can't get there. And it was just kept happening. So then once we had Scale Engine up and running, we're like, we're definitely going this year. Like, register, buy train tickets now. We're going. Uh, and so we did that. Uh, and so I went to my first BSD can. And the very first presentation on the first day was Will Andrews and Justin Gibbs talking about some patches they had written for ZFS. I was like, what is this ZFS? Right. And they had a, a couple of very short slides explaining what it was. Uh, and they showed a little bit about it. So I went to this conference and met a bunch of cool, uh, learned a lot of cool things and got really excited about a bunch of stuff. But being my normal shy self and so on, I met like three people. Okay. <laughs> like I, I, saw, I probably, I saw lots of people and maybe talked to a bunch, but right. I only actually had in-depth conversation with maybe like three people and didn't really meet very many people. You know, being me, I'd mostly just followed my business, Stefan around okay. uh, and did whatever he did. Kind of Was thing. this your first conference experience ever? It was my first real conference okay. experience, yes. But we had such a good time. We were like, we're definitely coming back next year. But then we're like, actually. So we were in our hotel room after the la end of the last day. Uh, and we're going, taking the train home the next day. Uh, we're like, at the end of the conference, they, they mentioned there's this EuroBSD conference we should submit a talk to that. Uh, why, you know, why wait for next year when we can do a talk later this year? So we submitted a talk about the, the geographic load balancer thing that I mentioned earlier, the right. GGNST thing. And that got accepted. Uh, and so then I had to rush around and get a passport. And they <laughs> uh, flew me, to, uh, me and Stefan to Poland uh, to give a talk at this conference. And I had a really great time and met a couple more people. So I met uh, Michael Dexter, uh, John Hickson, and a bunch of other people. And... Uh, over dinner one of the nights at the British pub we went to uh, in Poland, because whatever, because uh, they had an English menu, basically. <laughs> um, uh, John Hickson told me that, oh, we're having this Meet BSD conference in California, like 10 days after you get home from this. I'm like, that's a little last minute, but sure. Uh, I've had so much fun. Why not? 
So I uh, hooked up and went to that and met some more people and so on. And so then after all that, that convinced me to sign up for Asia BSDCon next March. Uh, and in that one, Stefan came as well, but uh, he, about halfway through the first day, he wandered off to go do touristy stuff or whatever. And I didn't see him again until the plane on the way home. <laughs> Whoa. Okay. So uh, it helped. Uh, you know, I, I don't think he did it on purpose, but it basically abandoning me helped me uh, learn to make some friends. Yeah. Forced you to go, go at it on your own. Uh, well, I basically did what I always did. I basically latched onto Michael Dexter instead and followed him around, but he introduced me to a bunch of people and okay. uh, I kind of uh, got grew into more part of the community and got more comfortable talking to people myself. And so when the next BSD can came around, I gave a talk, uh, which that time was the first time I gave a talk by myself. So my very first talk was Stefan and I together and I didn't give a talk in at MeetBSD or in Asia. Uh, but when the next BSD came, can came around, I gave my talk about, um, how we use puppet and why we do bare metal instead of the cloud for scale engine, mostly because it's actually cheaper for us. And on the train on the way to BSD can in 2013, I started writing the, uh, the handbook chapter on ZFS or rewriting it. Cause the one that was there was bad. Like the very first thing it started with is like, here's all the custom kernel stuff you have to recompile. If you want to do it on I3D6 which you don't just AMD 64. It just works. You don't have to, don't scare people away yeah. with the first paragraph. Right. <laughs> uh, and so basically I had uh, played with ZFS a little bit. I guess we had built the first ZFS server, which we covered in one of the early episodes of TechSnap. That server's still running, although the pool on it got destroyed two weeks ago. No way. Uh, we trashed that pool and pulled the hard drives out because those, two terabyte SAS drives have been running for 10 years and were impressive. Not, not, if somebody would like those hard drives, <laughs> right. <laughs> they should belong in a museum because they ran 24 seven for 10 years and haven't failed. That's amazing. Uh, two of them have uh, error counts that are going up, but the other six are still fine. I think one of those drives is actually a replacement because one of them did fail at some point, but yes, uh, on Twitter with, Chris Fisher, actually, I was discussing the other day about how uh, that's my oldest pool and it's just now being decommissioned. <laughs> anyway, so I had gotten into ZFS a little bit as a user and was writing the, the handbook chapter on the train on the way to BSD CAN because uh, I had been invited to the developer summit, which is an invite-only thing nice. on the two days before the conference. So there are normally tutorials for regular people uh, on that part, but I got invited to come to uh, work with the docs people uh, during the, uh, the developer summit. Um, and so I showed up with that and I learned how to do DocBook and started writing the ZFS handbook. So then when I came back the next year in 2014 uh, is when they gave me uh, write access to the repo, what's called my commit bit. Uh, and so then I could start actually just committing stuff directly to the docs repo. That's a big moment, get, isn't it? Instead of having to give it to someone else. And right. So when you, when you get your commit bit, you're assigned one or more mentors okay. for the first so many months. Everything you do, you give to them, they approve it, then you do the committing. Uh, but if anything's wrong with it, it's their fault, not your fault. <laughs> okay, right. It's really important for newbies, right? Right. It's like, they didn't catch it, uh, so it's their fault that anything was wrong, not the new person's. Uh, and that's a very important part of our community, is having that mentor and that we don't yell at new people for mistakes, it's their mentor's fault for not catching it. And then eventually you're left to fly solo, uh, and then then it's your fault. <laughs> so I did that. And then when I came back in 2015, uh, 
I got my source commit bit for the work I had done on the installer and a couple other things. And then in 2016, uh, just after BSD can was the uh, FreeBSD election. It happens every two years. They elect nine people to be what's called the core team, and they basically deal with the more administrative bits of the project, like settling arguments or deciding questions and so on. Uh, and I was elected to that and then reelected again in 2018. Uh, and so I very quickly went from just a user in 2012 uh, to docs by 2014, source in 2015, and core in 2016. <laughs> Every year since. Yeah, ah, that's good. Uh, and then eventually, as I did more of the source stuff and learned C, I started working on ZFS directly rather than just uh, being a consumer of it. I was starting to make fixes and add new functionality. And so I've gone to a couple of the Open ZFS developer summits and okay. presented the work I've been working on there. Wow. So if you look at your history from when you were just a user to all the way now, it's like you're, now you're really giving back to the community, really, mm -hmm. right? Like uh, it seems like you're carrying that same heart and the same love for um, the technology and the way it works, but mm -hmm. you're just doing it in a completely different way that is yeah, benefiting, I would imagine, thousands multiple and different thousands. Ways. Uh, it's interesting that, I mean, maybe a little bit to my chagrin, that the podcast is the most impactful part of what I'm giving back rather than necessarily the code I write. Well, do you think it's just the most visibly impactful? Uh, part of that, but it's, uh, you know, it's a FreeBSD project benefits from every new person we get to join the project. Of course. Uh, and the podcast helps with that. And Fair enough. Uh, the conferences get better with every additional person that comes to the conference. And the podcast is attracting a lot more people to the conferences. Uh, and so, yeah. Interesting. You know, uh, there's, I've definitely... You know, there's a lot of good in the the contributions I've made, like getting boot environments to work and improving the installer and the encrypted uh, disk boot support. Uh, but I think the podcast has turned out to be the thing that's made the biggest difference for the project. Hmm. Both in people inside the project are more aware of what else is going on in the project, but also what's going on in the neighboring projects like OpenBSD, NetBSD, DragonflyBSD, right. and so on. So it's served a very powerful function for both people that are already part of the project or have been part of the project longer than me and getting new people in, which is, you know, oftentimes one of our biggest struggles is, um, you know, too many people have the imposter syndrome like I had originally of like, oh, working on the OS is much too complicated for me. Um, it's like, I happen to start with docs, uh, but, you know, then I was working on the installer. I'm like, well, I only, I only do the shell script part of the installer. The C part is somebody else's problem. <laughs> But that's kind of what's cool about the OS is that yeah. you can break it down into all these teeny little pieces and then it's yeah. much more approachable, right? Like, Well, yes. And like, you know, a, a big chunk of the people in FreeBSD are sysadmins first who then became developers okay. as they started writing more complicated sysadmin tools and stuff. Through necessity. So, yeah. yeah. So you don't have to be a developer at all or a very good one at all uh, in order to join the project and, and still make very, very meaningful contributions. And, you know, every little bit helps. Yeah, well, you were mentioning docs, right? Like, yes, uh, or even just translating docs. Even if you can't oh. write them, just translating them into, uh, especially the languages of uh, people, like, we don't really bother with translating into Norwegian or Swedish because most people in Norway and Sweden can already read English. Like, the translation into traditional Chinese has been very valuable, and mm. that team's done a very good job. Mm -hmm. uh, but also, like, uh, Brazilian Portuguese and so on. Have, you know, some of these languages have a lot of demand, and could help a lot to have more translators. And we're trying to make it easier for the translators. Instead of having to write docbook and so on, we're getting closer to having a markdown-like syntax that's uh, much easier for people to just work just, with instead of having to spend all the time doing XML. Right. 
that way they can just get done what their skill set is. Right? Exactly. Oh, nice. Uh, it feels like making things easy and automating is sort of the string that ties all of your experiences together. Yeah, That's a lot of, of that what, has been what I've been after. Like uh, Some of the work I've talked about that I've never actually got around to finishing was switching a lot of the config files. Uh, Unix in general, including Linux, has always been bad for every different tool has its own different config file syntax. So in BSD, we have a universal one now called the Universal Config Language, UCL, and would like to get more and more of the tools switched over to using that. We have this concept in FreeBSD of there's a directory called etc defaults, and in it are config files you should never change that have the defaults in them. And then etc, you can override those defaults by putting your own settings. And that way, the defaults directory gets updated when you upgrade your OS, and the your copy doesn't change nice. so that your settings stay. My vision going well forward would be basically a version of FreeBSD where you could Basically, everything could be like API-driven. You control the whole machine using APIs rather than having to do anything manually. But all of it should also support being done manually because one of the things I've always liked about FreeBSD is that there's no magic. It's always it's very observable. You can see why and how things are happening. Okay. So you can always tell, you know, uh, there's nothing like network manager. You write the config file over here or the network is auto-configed. Nothing's going to happen if you didn't tell it to. So it's transparent in a way. Yes, so it's transparent yeah. and observable. So I, I would imagine for like troubleshooting, that kind of transparency is totally um, useful. Yeah, so uh, Brendan Gregg, who uh, wrote a lot of the original Dtrace tools, or uh, the newer Dtrace toolkit stuff, made this nice little uh, tweetable image of all the parts of FreeBSD and which tool you use to observe each one. Nice. He originally had one for Solaris, because that's what he started with. Uh, and he's built one for Linux, but there's a lot of lines flying out of it and it's a much more complicated but it's fascinating when you when you put mm -hmm. together something like that because it kind yeah. of tells the story of what's happening under the hood right exactly you, at each layer you can observe what's happening so would you say then that 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 some of how bsd is built um would be really um user friendly for someone who's just starting out um yes like in general unix is unix okay uh and so most of the like if you sit down at a shell most people probably wouldn't be able to tell the difference okay. right, right away. Uh, after a little while, you can start to see the tiny, tiny differences or whatever. But biggest one is that your shell is probably SH instead of bash, which maybe doesn't do arrays or whatever. But most Linux users, if they sat down at my FreeBSD laptop, uh, other than the fact that it's running Lumina, which is not that popular on Linux, but is available. Uh, if I just installed GNOME or KDE on it, uh, if they sat down on my computer, they probably wouldn't be able to tell it wasn't Linux at first. Right? It's right. like Firefox is the same, yeah. KDE is the same, the theme is there, the you know, the command line looks the same, everything happens the same, LS works. And so uh, what would you say then is the biggest like um hurdle for people to even give it a try? Uh the biggest one usually uh is something we've been trying to work on for FreeBSD is kind of a, a Rosetta Stone, a, okay. a translation guide. It's like, oh, instead of apt get install foo, use package install foo. Uh or but that's not dissimilar to moving to a different distribution, for exactly. instance, right? Uh, so in general, I think the biggest thing people will find surprising if they sat down at a fresh install of FreeBSD is that there are zero packages installed. The <laughs> operating system is not is basically kept separate from what we call the third-party packages. Okay. While there are a bunch of applications installed, they are what are part of the OS, and they live in like slash USR uh, and user bin and so on. Got it. Then everything you install yourself, like 
if you install Vim instead of the NVI that comes by default, uh, or if you install a, a Windows system or whatever, those all get based in user local and then the directory. So the config file is user local etc samba, and the binary is user local sbin right, samba or whatever. Okay. And this way of separating that means that something goes wrong with it, your OS is fine, or you upgrade your OS and your packages separately. Interesting. Uh, and so unlike if you upgrade Ubuntu, you know, I, I'm going to install the next version of Ubuntu or the next update for it to get the security updates. Oh, it's actually also changed the version of a bunch of the tools I'm using. That's annoying. Which may have or, caused some yeah, unexpected consequences. Yeah. Now, they've worked pretty hard to prevent that, but in FreeBSD, the OS is on this side of the fence and it's controlled by the FreeBSD tools and the local applications are on this side and controlled by the package manager and that's kind of your domain. Um, and so, you know, the OS is always separate and it means it's easy to upgrade the OS and not the packages or the packages and not the OS. Uh, and, and yeah. Some of what I've appreciated about what I've learned about BSD uh, and OpenBSD from you and from other places um, is some of the real thought that has gone into the process. Um, and so it takes a different approach in many ways, but there's always like quite a well thought out reason for the structure. But even mm-hmm. for instance, if you even look at the mentorship structure, it's kind of brings that same intention yeah. in that it's not just willy nilly. It's like, okay, well we have a way of doing it because it produces in the long run far better results. Yes. I think the biggest one is uh, something we call POLA on FreeBSD, which is a policy of least astonishment. So when <laughs> the that. sysadmin upgrades from FreeBSD 11 to FreeBSD 12, they know some things are going to change. What does change should be the least astonishing option to them. It, it shouldn't be a surprise. It shouldn't be that, oh, suddenly this command does the opposite of what it did before. Uh, or that you know some setting you had is just the opposite now. Um, and so we try to make it so that there's a smooth transition in the user decides what changes and we try not to change things by them uh, on them by default and so on right i don't know if it still makes sense nowadays but basically the the versioning scheme can be confusing to people uh so like we have freebsd 11.3 is the current version 11.3 just came out a couple months ago and 11.2 goes end of life i think at the end of uh, october anything you compile to work on freebsd 11. any version will work on all freebsd 11s we the the abi that the binary uses to talk to the kernel is guaranteed not to change. But when you go to 12, that's when we change it and those major versions. On Linux, it's a little different. I think they basically don't, they try not to change the binary interface, but instead constantly add new versions of things. So when they got 64 inodes, instead of just updating the stat syscall, they made stat 64 and so on. It has pros and cons, but... But it can be confusing because, for example, FreeBSD 12 came out and then FreeBSD 11.3 came out. Right. So 11.3 is newer, but and has some newer fixes and stuff that aren't in 12. Right. But 12 has some features that couldn't go into 11 because they're not. They would break the ABI. And Makes so sense. Uh, so we're looking at possibly actually renaming that. So we would call it, you know, FreeBSD 11 update three or something, so that it's clear that upgrading from FreeBSD 11.2 to 11.3 is really just installing your security patches kind of thing not the same as upgrading major versions where, you know, everything changes. Right, right. I want to say, first of all, like, thanks so much for your time. This Mm -hmm. has been a real pleasure. And also to chat with a fellow Canadian is always a treat. Um, Is there somewhere you'd like to send people if they want to get connected with you? Probably the easiest way if you want to reach me is just 
Twitter. I'm Alan Jude, A-L-L-A-N-J-U-D-E. Uh, or on the Jupiter Broadcasting IRC, I'm always idling there. So you can always okay. ping me there if you want interactive or whatever. Uh, and, you know, check out bsdnow.tv. Even if you're not really into BSD, there's lots to learn. It's a great way to start bridging that gap. And uh, with that, we take a, usually about three u- viewer questions each episode. So if you have any questions about BSD or anything like that, if you write into feedback at bsdnow.tv, uh, then we will try to answer your questions on the show. And you do the show live, right? uh, We do it live every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Eastern, which is 1600 UTC. Watch out for the daylight savings change. Europe will be offset by an hour and North America won't. So the show time here won't change, but for people in Europe, it will change for a little bit for those two weeks of stupidity. Now that the podcast is audio only, we still stream video just of our faces. Not We don't do the whole showing the website thing anymore, but if you go to bsdnow.tv slash live, the scale engine DVR feature is set up so that you can watch the live stream of the last episode we recorded on the website right up to the minute where we start recording the next one and it gets replaced. Nice. So using the DVR buffer, you can uh, pause and rewind the live show while it's playing or show up after the show and watch the whole thing as if it was live with fast forward if you want. Cool. You'll you'll never know it wasn't live. Basically. (laughs) So one question I think might be kind of interesting to ask you is, is there something you'd like the community to do or to think about or take action on or... Some kind of ask, I suppose. If you haven't give BSD a try, you might that seems, just give it a try. Yeah, that seems like a logical um, place to go. And I know there was a few people in the uh, Jupiter Broadcasting IRC who were like hemming and hawing, and and you and I are on there saying, no, no, just just try, just show up for the show, at least learn a little bit, and and give yeah. it a try. Like there is lots of opportunity with with BSD, so why not? Yeah, uh, and. You know, even if you just want to tune in for the feedback section near the end where we answer ZFS questions, because it turns out ZFS works on all the operating systems now. Right. Uh, like Jorgen Lundman has a version you can install on Windows 10 and it works. Uh, well, thank you again so much for chatting and I hope we yes, get to connect again Thanks for arranging soon. this and coming all the way out here. Of course. Thanks for inviting me into your home. That's great. 